BJ Oncology is live in Paris at ESMO 2022. We're speaking to leading experts across the field of oncology about the biggest updates being presented at the Congress. Here are our highlights from day two. First, we spoke to Professor Dirk Schoedendorf about overall survival results from the Immuned trial for melanoma. COMBI-E is a study which uh, was performed in stage 4 melanoma. Um, all these patients were untreated and uh, this was a two-arm registrational study uh, testing um, dabrafenib and tramitinib, uh, a BRAF and a MEK inhibitor um, versus dabrafenib, tramitinib and a PD-1 antibody spatalizumab in a patient cohort of metastatic melanoma who are carrying the BRAF mutation. Um, these uh, studies have uh, already been uh, published um, and uh, communicated in, in the sense that uh, this study has not reached its clinical endpoint um, in terms of relapse-free survival uh, improvement and also OS. Um, but we see after um, now more than three years uh, of follow-up that there is roughly a 20% increase in um, uh, improvement um, also um, protecting against uh, uh, deaths uh, in this study, although it's not reaching statistically significant because the trial probably was um, not large enough. The poster now um, is exploring um, different subsets and it's uh, trying to look for biomarkers um, and uh, one of the biomarkers are uh, neutrophils and lymphocytes and the ratio between both and we know that um, inflammatory uh, signatures in the tumor in the tumor environment are important factors for predicting outcome um, in patients uh, towards a checkpoint blockade and that's actually what we see here uh, as well we could nicely show that these factors are associated with outcome uh, particularly in patients who have um, a higher uh, risk of really progressive uh, of a progressive disease like patients with LD, uh, increased LDH uh, with uh, multiple organ sites involved. We also spoke to Professor Bjorn Henning Gromberg about unmet needs in radiotherapy for small cell lung cancer. Yeah, the key points of my discussion was uh, the varying uh, implementation of uh, thoracic radiotherapy in the limited stage small cell lung cancer. I also discussed uh, the concept of consolidation radiotherapy in extensive stage small cell lung cancer and then uh, prophylactic cranial irradiation or PCI. So the main topic of my, my, my talk was uh, the, the varying practice when it comes to the thoracic radiotherapy in limited stage small cell lung cancer. Uh, we uh, all agree that it is of value, that it provides uh, a, a significantly longer survival for these patients. Uh, I think we also agree that uh, the radiotherapy should start as early as possible. But when it comes to the schedules of radiotherapy, uh, there's a large variation. <clears throat> there's one trial uh, published back in 99 that shows that twice daily uh, radiotherapy is uh, the most effective schedule, but it has been uh, poorly implemented because it caused uh, uh, quite a lot of toxicity. And uh, we see that uh, <clears throat> maybe one third of the patients actually receive uh, twice daily radiotherapy. 
Uh, I showed data from uh, one of our studies where we showed that uh, we have been able to implement it um, much more successfully in Norway. In 2018, more than 90% of our patients uh, received twice daily radiotherapy. <clears throat> and we see that in the same time period, survival uh, in this uh, group of patients has uh, increased uh, significantly. So we believe that it's feasible and that it can be offered to uh, pa patients of old age, patients with uh, comorbidity and also patients with stage 3 disease. When you look at population-based studies from other countries, we can see that there's probably a selection when it comes to uh, choosing the patient to actually offer this treatment. I then uh, uh, also uh, uh, showed results from uh, two trials that have been published uh, not so long ago, uh, showing that uh, um, the high-dose radiotherapy given as uh, one in, in one daily fraction does not prolong survival. We've been waiting quite a long time for those data. We had an indication from the European CONVERT trial, and now we see also from the American trial that it's not superior. Maybe it's uh, equally uh, effective, but it's not superior. And then the last uh, part of that discussion was uh, showing data from a Chinese trial <clears throat> and uh, from a trial that we did in the Nordics. In both trials, we have accelerated uh, the radiotherapy uh, by reducing the treatment time. And in the Chinese uh, trial, they g gave one uh, fraction per day in a higher dose, and they see that it uh, at least uh, prolongs uh, progression-free survival. Uh, and then we need to wait for the survival data to mature. In our trial, we uh, had another strategy. We gave two fractions per day, uh, the supposedly most toxic uh, uh, regimen, uh, but to a higher dose. And we see that 60 gray in 40 fractions uh, significantly improves uh, median overall survival and two-year overall survival. And uh, next year, we will uh, present the final data from that trial, and uh, I think uh, that would be quite interesting. The last uh, point uh, was uh, regarding toxicity, because uh, uh, dysphagia caused by the radiation-induced esophagitis has been uh, uh, one of the major concerns about the twice daily schedule. And we see that in all uh, recent trials, there's much less toxicity, uh, probably because we limit uh, the target volumes and also uh, stage uh, patients we're using uh, PET-CT, and then we have modern radiotherapy techniques. Um, but uh, um, uh, now I lost a uh, thought here. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> and now we also have uh, uh, patient-reported outcomes showing uh, the potential impact of the esophagitis, and we see that uh, even though there's clearly discomfort during and immediately after the treatment. We also see that most patients recover very well within eight weeks after completing treatment. So maybe, maybe these concerns about esophagitis, at least now using modern techniques, uh, is not so important as uh, before. The other setting of thoracic radiotherapy is the role in extensive stage disease. There are some data indicating that it is a benefit, but it's quite modest, and uh, we haven't uh, Im implemented it as widely as in uh, limited stage disease. Uh, now that uh, we have four trials establishing immunotherapy uh, combined with chemotherapy uh, as the primary systemic treatment, I think this has sparked a new interest in the role, uh, potential role of uh, uh, thoracic radiotherapy also among these patients. 
Um, we know that it's quite well tolerated uh, from uh, different trials, both in small cell uh, lung cancer and uh, also in non-small cell lung cancer. And uh, there are several ongoing trials that will uh, explore whether adding um, the radiotherapy also uh, in the extensive stage disease can uh, lead to a synergistic effect with immunotherapy and then prolong survival. Because uh, I think we also believe that the survival benefit of immunotherapy in this setting is uh, modest and uh, maybe uh, uh, less uh, clinically relevant than we hoped for. The final uh, uh, controversy uh, that I discussed is uh, the role of uh, PCI, the prophylactic cranial irradiation. It was first established for limited stage small cell lung cancer. Uh, then there was a Dutch trial showing a benefit uh, among patients also with extensive stage disease. But a few years uh, later, uh, I think we were all um, less certain that there was a benefit because there was a Japanese uh, study strongly indicated that the MRI surveillance is uh, as uh, good as uh, PCI. Um, there are different strategies explored, hippocampal avoidance, uh, for example, to reduce the uh, toxicity of the PCI uh, to phase three trials, one positive, one negative. So I think we're back to square one. Uh, but in this setting, I think there will be uh, uh, a solution because there are two large initiatives, uh, the American Maverick trial and the European Primal Lung trial that will randomize patients, uh, quite uh, large numbers of uh, patients between PCI and MRI surveillance. And in these trials, uh, patients receiving immune therapy are allowed and also hippocampal uh, sparing PCI is allowed. So uh, I'm quite sure that we will have those data in the future. Dr. Oleg Glaz discussed the analyses of the ADAPT and ADAPT cycle trials for breast cancer. So it's um, quite interesting. In the ADAPT and in the follow-up uh, ADAPT cycle trial, we have looked on the clinical risk of patients with hormonal receptor positive HER2 negative disease. And in patients with intermediate to high clinical risk, we have done genomic testing by oncotype DX on the core biopsy and endocrine assessment for after two or four weeks of preoperative endocrine treatment according to investigator decision. And in the ADAPT trial, we have recommended to, or, um, uh, to omit chemotherapy in case of recurrence code 12 to 25 and up to, up, to, up to three positive lymph nodes. So all patients with recurrence code below 12, we are treated by endocrine therapy alone. All patients with recurrence code 12 to 25, we are treated by chemotherapy according to their endocrine response status and all patients with recurrence score more than 25 we are treated by chemotherapy. In the ADAPT cycle trial as follow-up trial we have offered the randomization to intensified endocrine treatment by combination of, of aromatase inhibitors plus ovarian function suppression and premenopausal women and ribociclib compared to chemotherapy to this patient's group and also in patients for example with recurrence score more than 25 and endocrine responders up to five, up to up to three positive lymph nodes. So we have looked also on the higher risk population. And now we have presented for today we have presented the results of the preoperative phase of this of, of both trials. So from the ADAPT trial and from the screening cohort of the ADAPT cycle trial and uh, about 3,300 patients from the ADAPT trial and about 2,200 patients from the ADAPT cycle trial were included in this analysis. And we have looked on endocrine response rates 
in patients according to their age and menopausal status and recurrent score in both trials. And we have observed a very interesting, uh, very interesting thing. In the ADAPT trial, most patients were treated by tamoxifen alone for two to fix four weeks before the surgery. And in this case, we have endocrine responder status in about 50% in recurrent score was zero to 25, and about 20% in, in, in patients who had recurrent score more than 25. We know from the ADAPT trials that this endocrine responder status is very important for prognosis of patients and chemotherapy can be safely omitted if you have low or intermediate genomic risk and endocrine response, yet in even in case if there are more than, uh, more than one positive lymph node. But again, in the ADAPT trial, patients did not get ovarian function suppression in this preoperative setting. In the ADAPT cycle trial, we have about 30% of patients who were treated by combination of tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors plus ovarian function suppression in this period of time of two to four weeks before the surgery. And we have seen that the endocrine response rates were increased from this 40 or 20% up to 80% if ovarian function suppression was added. And this were the similar ranges of endocrine response as we are observed in the postmenopausal situation. And this question may be very, very important for our patients in the routine because you have completely different biology and different prognosis in premenopausal women if you have endocrine responders and endocrine non-responders. And this results may, may help to guide you to give or not to give chemotherapy. If you have a lot of other factors, clinical risk, genomic risk, and endocrine responder status, you may be able to have the best decision for the patients, which intensity of adjuvant treatment do you need in this case. Dr. Shahina Darwood explained three recent trials investigating endocrine therapy resistance in ER-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. So I think ESMO 2022 has been really exciting in the fact that it's, it's gotten abstracts and specifically addressed the very challenging question of what to do when a patient with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer develops endocrine resistance. Uh, that's been very challenging for community oncologists because what do you do that's optimal in that particular setting? So this year we saw three abstracts that were presented at the mini oral uh, abstract session. Uh, the Two of them dealt with uh, oral surds. The promise of oral surds um, is that can it be better than fulvestrant, uh, which has been our traditional surd that we're using in the clinic. Fulvestrant is an intramuscular injection, so more inconvenient to actually give a patients. And at least in preclinical models, oral surds seem to be doing better than a fulvestrant. Last year at San Antonio in 2021, we did see the results of the Emerald trial that looked at trend. I'm not very good at pronouncing these oral surds. Um, and they were able to actually show in a randomized phase three clinical trial where patients who had endocrine resistant disease randomized to receiving either the oral surd or a physician choice of endocrine therapy, there was a significant benefit 
benefit uh, to uh, getting the oral surge, specifically so in the ESR1 cohort. So this year at ESMO 2022, we saw two abstracts looking at two other oral surges. These were two phase two trials. You had the Amira trial as well as the Acelera trial, looking at two very different uh, oral surges. Both studies very similar in design to what we saw at, uh, in the Emerald study, randomizing patients who had endocrine resistant disease to either getting physician choice of endocrine therapy or uh, the oral CERD. Um, unfortunately, in terms of looking at the entire cohort, uh, it didn't look like there was any difference in terms of progression-free survival between physician choice of endocrine therapy versus the oral CERDs. However, when you specifically looked at the ESR1 population, there was a strong trend favoring the group of patients who were getting the oral CERD. So again, I don't think uh, that we're there yet in terms of using oral CERDs in the clinic in that endocrine resistance setting. I think we do need more data. I think that the, the clinical trials need to be better designed in terms of focusing on patients who've got ESR1 mutation. I also think that looking at patients with only ESR1 mutation as a mechanism of endocrine resistance is something that we should not be doing. We should be looking at other mechanisms of endocrine resistance because we're obviously not being able to treat everyone appropriately. So again, we, we need to look at other mechanisms that could potentially help patients in the future. The third abstract actually looked at, an, at a third generation of um, uh, oral SERMs, selective estrogen receptor modulators, and they specifically looked at lazoxifen. Very interesting study, it was the ELANE-1 study uh, that took patients specifically this time who had an ESR1 mutation, endocrine resistant, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer, who'd progressed on an aromatase inhibitor and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. These patients were randomized to receive either lazoxifen or fulvestrin. So here, a very good study, which I think a cleaner study, because all patients had progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor, all patients had an ESR1 mutation, and the control arm of the trial looked at only fulvestrin rather than physician choice of endocrine therapy. Now here, the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival. Although not statistically significant, there was a strong trend suggesting that patients who were getting lazoxifen were doing a lot better, had an improved PFS, although not statistically significant, compared to patients who were receiving fulvestrant. In an exploratory analysis, again, very interesting, when they looked at patients um, who had ctDNA measured at various time points, how well did lazoxifen compare to fulvestrin clear uh, ESR1 mutation uh, levels using ctDNA uh, methodology. And what, they, what the investigators found was that the ctDNA levels uh, in terms of ESR1 was being cleared a lot better with lazoxifen versus uh, fulvestrant. And more interestingly, lazoxifen also cleared those hard to treat ESR1 mutations. So again, a very interesting study. Um, I'm looking forward to a larger scale study that will prove uh, whether lazoxifen is a good monotherapy in patients with endocrine resistance. But I think going forward, monotherapy in the endocrine resistance setting is not where I think we're going to be at. I think we're going to be looking at combination uh, therapies. And lazoxifen has a second interesting trial that was presented last year, uh, this year at ASCO, in fact, ASCO 2022, the ELANE 2 trial that looked at the combination of azoxifen and abemaciclib. Very interesting results. And it also builds on the growing body of evidence that perhaps you can use CDK4-6 inhibitor beyond progression. So I think that 
endocrine resistance space is, is a space that we should be looking out for. A lot of interesting data coming out, a lot of interesting endocrine therapeutic agents being investigated in that realm, but it's a complex area. We need to be looking at a whole spectrum of endocrine uh, resistant mechanisms of action. We need to be targeting them appropriately, and I think combination therapy is where we're going to be at in that specific realm. That concludes our highlights from day two. Stay tuned with VJ Oncology for more coverage throughout the Congress.